0: QPSC. Um, we'll open up with roll call please.
1: Trustee Banerjee? Here. Trustee Bouquet Here.
2: Trustee
1: Charland? Trustee Hernandez? Here. Trustee Jensen? And Trustee Lawrence? Here.
2: Okay. With that,
0: uh, we often go right into closed session, but we will defer that uh, given our, our voting status. With that, we'll, we'll enter into item B on the agenda, which is the consent agenda. Uh, can I have a uh, uh, well, I, I don't know if I should call for a motion because there are no one here to vote. We can move into discussion about the agenda, if that, uh, the consent agenda. If that's okay with everybody,
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah. okay. But uh, we, have, do we a have a quorum. Right. Oh, we do. Oh, we do. No, we do. oh sorry. Yeah, I apologize. Yeah. We do have a quorum. So uh, with that, let's uh, move into uh, consent agenda and uh, can I have a motion to approve the consent agenda.
3: I move.
0: And uh, second second and uh with that we can open up to end the dialogue any discussion uh with regard to either the minutes or um uh the 12 policies which were included in uh, this month's consent agenda packet with regard to the minutes uh, a couple of things that i'd like to uh to say on page six of our packet uh uh, we were we were having discussion about policies, and uh, I think uh, we wrote one letter wrong. We were talking about CAOs having uh, uh, authority over some of these items at the respective hospitals. The the uh, packet actually says, uh, the minutes say, CEO.
3: Yeah, say so so, uh, so on
0: page six, it should say CAOs, that's Chief Ambulatory Officers. Um, Administrators. Uh, Chief Administrative Officer, sorry. On page seven, uh, uh, we talked about uh, Trustee uh, Jensen um, uh, requesting some policy flow education. I think that was written appropriately. On page eight, Uh, Dr. Hearn was commenting on transferring patients out of the system, occurring, quote, dozens of times a year uh, for uh, interventional endoscopy. I just wanted to give that clarification. It's approximately between 100 and 200 times per year, rather than dozens of times a year. Um, Those are just fact clarifications and uh, amendments to the minutes. Uh, With regard to the uh, 12 policies included uh, in the packet, uh, open it up for any dialogue, if any. Um, I have a couple of comments. Uh, in follow-up to last month's request for actual names on the policies, uh, We uh, I, I appreciated that the executive summary contained names, but there still were not, not names on any of the actual policies included here. So I think we, we talked about applying the names of the individuals to the policies. Again, this is a work in process. Uh, it was just something that we had discuss, discussed before. Um, uh, in follow-up to uh, Trustee Jensen's request last month for better education on policy flow, um, I'd like to put it on our future agenda item uh, uh, to explain the differences in roles and responsibilities of the patient care leadership team and the clinical practice council. Um, uh, wouldn't the function of the patient care leadership team effectively be embedded in the work of the clinical practice council, question mark? I think there's, uh, the board could use some clarity on Flow. So I think this should be a possibly a future agenda item for how policies flow. Is that okay, Timber? Um Same issue as last month, when the CAO, the chief administrative officer, is listed as the responsible person, it should probably say cite CAO uh, yeah, because we, we remember that we had some uh, discussion about absence of clarity on, on which person was responsible. Um, my last comment, then again I feel like I'm hogging the mic here, is uh, we have lots of opportunity on standard nomenclature protocol uh, for my review of this. Um, for example, we have a, a number of nutrition policies on, on, on this month's consent agenda. Uh, but if you look at them, it's not obvious that it's necessarily a nutrition policy. For example, one of the policies is entitled multi- multidisciplinary patient care plans how would one know that that was a nutrition policy
2: mm-hmm.
0: and 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 ergo how would one be able to search for this specific policy as our policies grow so I think uh, I think we have an opportunity uh, the royal we have an opportunity mm-hmm. to get some standardization amongst the nomenclature especially as we have hundreds and thousands of policies I think I think uh, uh, definitely uh, the Tanvir will be uh, addressing that and uh, Dr. Jamal Adin and some of and so this clarification being good librarians for, for our work. Um, with that, any more comments? i definitely hog the mic on that one.
4: Uh, I, I see when their policies are revised, but do we have a process in which we are notified when a policy is terminated or, or
5: stopped? Yes, um, every policy goes undergoes uh, in policy. So a couple of things. Um, in policy tech which is the... camera uh, we do me a
0: favor and a favor of everyone?
5: Uh we listen to the audio
0: recordings and uh all audio quality has fa- shall we say has fallen off, so speak into the
5: mic if you don't mind, please. Um is it- uh, uh, I appreciate these questions because I think they will inform the content that we'll deliver at the next meeting around policy flow, one of which is um, the way in which the policies um, are cataloged. For example, that multidisciplinary one would have fallen under a tab uh, under um, nutritional policies, but we need to be a little more clear about that. And when we, uh, when the policy goes into the system, um, it's in there, uh, We uh, there's an uh, automated, um, expiration that occurred expiration that occurs at three years to prompt a review of the policy Um, So that's automated unless there are regulatory policies that are prompted uh, every year to be reviewed. So there is a tickler which allows uh, the policy coordinator to know that something requires review that's then forwarded to the owner of the policy to do the review um, if that owner of the policy um, believes that it is, uh, needs to be revised, it gets revised. If it's no longer as pertinent, it gets expired. If the, it requires systems integration, now that we're in a new policy review setting, it gets So triggered. how does the
4: owner, uh, maybe, well, I can save these questions for when we have the,
5: the big thing. I just. If you have a question, you uh, tell me. I'll type it out so I make sure I address it. Well, uh,
4: um, the owners of the policy, when we talked about how do you know who the owner is?
5: It's one of the, um, so you might find exceptions to this in the current state, but um, moving forward, and most of the policies do have an owner, usually a role, that's identified. So we go back to that role to identify who should take ownership over it. Now, um, this, as uh, Dr. Trustee Bouquet identified, as we go through this evolution, we will have to be more considerate of how to designate that rule, whether it's site specific or at a system level, um, but that that is also prompts this next question about what should a policy look like. So one of the things that we are trying to do is standardize that form so we can build it into policy tech and, and create some more standardization around this. So that well, sort of and,
4: and why I ask is because in the you know the five and a half years that I've sat here and approved policies. Um, uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I didn't realize there were thousands, but apparently there are thousands.
5: Um, there are 5,900.
4: Oh my God. Um, so, do you ever eliminate one?
5: So as part of the process, these are, I'm, I'm typing, because I want to make sure I address this at the next one as well, uh, meeting is that one of the things that we are recognizing um, and, and this, the, the, the creation of this new governing group, the CPC, is allowing us to create people um, who will become more sophisticated in the way that, in our lexicon of when, how we label these documents as to whether or not it's truly a policy, it is, a, is it a procedure, is it a clinical practice guideline? Is it a clinical standard? Is it a standardized procedure that needs to meet the Board of Registered Nursing? So currently all of this is conflated, which contributes to the bloat. And so um, <laughs> so we're trying to take all these thoughts into consideration as new policies come to us. And then we have to think about how to d- apply this to existing policy, which will be a little harder. But we calculated 5,900 policies a we review them for 15 minutes each at CPC, which means four hours a month. It would take 45 years. Um, so we have to just you know, balance all those. But we have strategies to, to, to sort to the top the most urgent things. Just, uh, yes, Dr. just
6: uh, going back to your original question, Trustee Lawrence, is when the policy is terminated, it is communicated to the relevant party, mm-hmm. the organization? You know, when, when the policy is progressed, we communicate to the nurses, to the physicians, to whoever is involved in that policy.
4: And I certainly don't want to get technical, but if it, if a board is required to approve the policy, and in basically it's the board's policy for the hospital, if I'm not understanding this process correctly, then it seems to me that just a list of what's been delineated, and the board the board would sanction it, wouldn't they?
6: Um, if uh, if it mm-hmm. is recommended by the MEC, uh, so
4: I don't, yeah, I don't know how the how the formal thing would work, um, but we can we can go As into that later. I so I, I think but this I again, no, no, no
0: but Trustee Lawrence, mm-hmm. I think this is great uh, to bring up. Uh, Helping the board Um, to understand the flow of policies and the management of the policy structure, I think, is something I know Tanver that's a mountain, but but maybe we can summarize that mountain into three pages, if you will. Policy understanding for dummies. One, 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 one. And And,
7: and I have a second question, and and this, forgive me, this may be completely uh, out of left field, but will our new electronic health record be linked to the database that has instruction around policies and protocols?
6: Well, it can be linked to guidelines, and uh, we call them uh, computerized position order entry mm-hmm. that follow certain best practice guidelines. Mm-hmm. But uh, the guidelines are different than the policy. The policy mm-hmm. is a higher level. Okay. And that's what, uh, hopefully, with, with the nomenclature that we are, we are mm-hmm. agreeing on, we will we'll clarify uh, some research and group meeting task force <laughs> by, by Tanvir and uh, nursing leadership and we come back and clarify this.
3: But so there will be some element of integrating practice guidelines and all of that into the relevant patients.
5: Yes, yes, and um, th- I think that was uh, uh, one of the uh, <coughs> impetuses, the main impetus of um, of getting the CPC together is that um, we know that we will have to as an as a system agree on clinical standards and 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 so um, to be able to reach that point so that it can be embedded embedded into the EHR mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: Thank and, and, and we
5: want it to be system system-wide? system mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. exactly
5: okay.
0: great dialogue yep. um, with that uh, item B uh, we've already have a motion and a second all in favor of approving the consent agenda Abstentions? I mean, uh, uh, opposed, abstentions, none. The the motion carries, and consent item, uh, agenda B goes forward. So with that, I apologize. I jumped us out of uh, line. I skipped closed session because I thought I was waiting for our third med staff chief. I I, I now know that Dr. Hearn's going to be presenting his data for him. So with that, let's go into closed session, please. Yes, in the closed session is... Tell me when you're on, Dave. Okay. Okay. All right, everybody, welcome back to open session for our March uh, QPSC. We'll go to item C on the agenda. This is a new agenda item, as many of you have uh, probably identified. So I'm going to call this an education or a report discussion item. There will be nothing ever actionable off this item. And I want to discuss maybe uh, I've had discussions with Ghassan, Tanvir. Paulov, uh, some of our trustees about this. This is going to be a relatively short thing. I think we have an opportune moment to continue our education uh, with regard to our mission and our quality here. And I want to use this maybe as a as a launching pad, a venue to initiate some of these dialogues, uh, to be provocative uh, and the like. Um, I'd like to uh, 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 talk about a couple things, and as the new. As the new chair of this committee, it it prompted me to go back and review the charter for our committee and and identify the purpose here. This is a a document which already exists uh, within us. It's our our, um, board charter and uh, bylaws. And I just want to review our purpose here uh, from our existing charter. The QPSC, the Quality and Professional Services Committee, Is established to provide oversight and leadership for medical staff credentialing, review of organizational policies, and monitoring of organizational quality, assurance, performance improvement, and safety programs. QPSC is charged with continuing the practice of direct communication with medical staff leaders on issues of clinical operations and patient care. So that's why we are here, and that's largely what we've been doing. I think the opportunity we have is to continuously try to improve how we do things. Uh, so with that, I, I, I want to talk about a couple of things here, uh, and uh, it will be a short time. First, I want to use this as a venue for education. So there is an article uh, uh, that, that uh, is distributed for each of you, I, hopefully for all of you. It's from the New York Times. It's a little bit, uh, it, it, it's a couple years old. It's from February of 2015. <laughs> just to present that this article is here for you to review. It's not for us to hear to dialogue on this point because I have not previously given it to you. I think this would be an interesting article for us to maybe discuss in this venue, perhaps at a, at a forthcoming date. So I just want to bring that forth. It's very interesting and provocative reading, and I, I, and I want everybody uh, uh, public staff, uh, Board of Trustees to, 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 consider this, uh, t- to consider this document. The second thing and final thing that I want to talk about is uh, our, our learnings from, from, from people who live in the quality world. And I, I want to bring up a point which many of us probably know about but we sometimes don't formally dialogue about, and that's the concept of the quadruple aim. So I want to review every, for everybody what the quadruple aim is. So the uh, Institute for Health Improvement uh, is, is an international body uh, which really puts at its center patient care, uh, patient quality as, as its central th- thrust. Uh, Dr. Don Berwick, uh, who many of you have heard of, I- is, is often regarded as the guru of health quality in the, in the United States. So Dr. Berwick, in working a, a, as, as, as a primary educator within uh, IHI, worked with the IHI in 2007. They published something called the Triple Aim. Welcome, Trustee Jensen. The triple aim, again, with the goal of great patient care and quality care, really has three aims and, 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 and the thrust of them coming together to, to give good patient care. So the first one was patient experience, or we can nowadays call it patient satisfaction. So a thrust on patient satisfaction certainly, uh, uh, one could argue, is important to quality. The second uh, thrust was population health, understanding how we manage populations. I think that's apropos given uh, where our organization is moving towards engaging discussions of population health. That's occurring not only here at our organization, but nationwide. And we now have a great new VP of of population management. Um, Uh, who we hope to, uh, in the future, give us uh, great reports. And then the third point of the original triple aim in 2007 was cost of care. So so Dr. Berwick asserted that these three things had to come together for us to be effective. That is, patient satisfaction slash experience, that includes quality. Mm -hmm. Second is thoughtfulness to patient population, and third is the cost of care. And, and, and I, I think for many of those uh, who are interested in the quality world, this was sort of the mantra for, for almost a decade or so. About a year or so, they made an adaptation to the triple aim, and they called it the quadruple aim. And they added on a fourth aim, and that fourth aim was clinician and staff satisfaction. Because the, the assertion is, without clinician and staff satisfaction, how in the heck can you achieve those other three things? I would like for us to engage in the future, and and as I put it on the formal agenda, for us to engage in these robust dialogues about how we actually address and approach these four items systematically. And and I put out questions. Is the current SBU presentation format, does it address that question mark? Is this board uh, getting the data it needs in the way it needs to answer these questions? Where does clinician and staff satisfaction sit in the in the in the realm of this? How are we measuring it? How are we managing? It? These are just questions that I hope to engage as we move forward, and that's that. So with that, I'll open up for any questions for as we close out item C. Comments? Um,
7: I'm very familiar with the quadruple aim modification, and just as a point of observation. Um, There is some healthy debate about that quadruple or that fourth aim. Uh, Some have actually suggested that the fourth aim should be health equity. And so uh, the debate I saw in an article, I believe it was in Health Affairs, is that triple aim was always meant to be about the patients. It was always meant to be about the service, the quality of care, and so on. And so um, there's no question that we need to think about the health of our providers, their mental health, their spiritual health, their resiliency—I have no question about that. I—I um, I, I think we have to have a healthy dialogue about whether or not putting this fourth aim distracts us from what we still have yet to achieve, which is the tripling from the very word "go." We haven't done that yet, Absolutely. so so it's something to think about. But I agree, we do need to be concerned about the. Wellness and health of our providers. I,
0: I think it's a robust and worthy dialogue that we have. And what the IHI says is that th- this is just a construct, it doesn't have to be for everyone. Military Health Services has chosen the quadruple aim, but their fourth aim is readiness. They didn't choose. Yeah. clinician or provider right. or, or, or staff wellness. So I think this this is a great dialogue yeah. that we should have, and, and we can't have it unless we agendize it. Right. So I, I look forward to working with our quality team, Dr. Jamaluddin, and, and all of you towards working where the right place in the agenda is for that.
7: Might mm-hmm. be a good retreat item, too. Uh, I
0: think so. I think so. Yeah. Trustee Lawrence, you have a very quizzical look on your face.
4: Oh, well, because we can't talk about it, um, I I have to hold my tongue.
0: Yes, ma'am. <laughs> um, any other commentary on items? But
4: this never stopped me before. <laughs> 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 I, I, I <laughs> was
3: waiting for. I
4: for I would just <laughs> point that out. Um, I I suppose when I when I hear these things of outside agencies setting up the criteria, and I have no quarrel with. With the three or the four and frankly i think the equity ought to be in number five what, what what and and i will liken it to my own profession in public education how schools are often judged on a, a state criteria when in fact the local boards no. and the local community ought to in fact establish some of their own things that they think are worthy of, of the organization pursuing. Um, and so I just wanted to add that because there's nothing that says that we can't do six things right. that would make our organization more robust. Um, so that was just my offside comment that I wasn't no. going to say.
0: <laughs> that you said, but a worthy statement. I, and I, 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 can, I think the point is I think all our engaged staff and the trustees and certainly the docs on, on this kind of dialogue and kind of setting the vision for what we want to accomplish. Uh, so you can't get there if you don't know where you're going. So with that, uh, we will end item C and go into item D. Uh, medical staff reports, please. Miller's um, Choice, Dr. Hearn, Dr. Magalong, uh, Dr. Hart? Of course.
8: Um, once again, good afternoon. Just a uh, quick update on some of our uh, key initiatives uh, from the medical staff. Uh, purely informational, but includes a number of uh, issues to both meet uh, regulatory and operational demands. Uh, obviously, the medical staff continues to discuss our key uh, wellness uh, topics. We'll address those again in the, in the larger session and spend a little bit more time there. In addition, we are in the process of continuing our peer review redesign across the system, uh, with Alameda Hospital actually taking the lead, uh, doing a great job in that respect. Um, In addition, we have uh, redefined our ongoing uh, OPPE, which is professional practice evaluation, where, where we do sort of ongoing evaluation of our providers. In addition, we'll be discussing safety and security. We understand that the new security contract for Highland is a coming up uh, for RFP in the next few months. Uh, we are standardizing our clinical privileges across the system and reviewing um, clinical practice uh, prerogatives. In addition, the uh, all three chiefs of the um, um, hospitals and medical staffs have uh, been brainstorming about having a leadership retreat for the MEC um, that to include the MECs of all three hospitals, probably mid to late, uh, probably late September, where we, um, instead of Just sending one person to a conference uh, to learn about medical staff leadership issues and medical staff uh, topics, trying to bring in um, subject matter experts to talk about wellness, credentialing, blame, uh, second victim programs, incentivizing quality. Um, There's lots of legal responsibilities for medical staffs separate from hospitals and hospital systems, which is interesting in a very California-centric sort of way, uh, as well as uh, behavior, uh, conduct, and professionalism issues. A great
3: idea. Well, it
4: should be fun. I have a quick Yes, no, uh, uh, Dr. Lawrence. Dr. Grant, what is the manner in which the NECs or the doctor organizations, I don't know what term to use, would talk about their um, their collective voice on public health issues? And uh, I suppose I, I'm asking that question because I, you know, I admire so much of the work that our profession, our professionals have done in this in this organization across across the, the county, and yet I, I never see their collective voice coming out in a in, in their community in a public way, you know, um, on issues that that are. They could be politically sensitive, certainly, but but certainly have an impact on on one's health. As an example, you know we would pass these nutrition policies, and I've never heard yet what happened with the sugar thing that we got so invested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I so that that's hanging out there. I, I because we were in Scottsdale and they asked uh, issues of the issues of health and the determinants of social health. Um, It was probably the wrong place to say it in Arizona, but uh, I talked about guns and gun violence. And I never hear the professionals, the doctors of RMECs, coming out against certain policies that are either national or in the state, and I would think that our MECs could lead a county population, the voters in this county, on many more issues that I think have substance that do interfere with individuals' health and the well-being of a community. So how do those things, when do those things get discussed, or do they ever get discussed in an organization?
8: Good question. From an organizational standpoint, it's not clear that there is in, in the current situation, a venue for a more political voice. However, so it leaves individual departments and individuals to sort of make those statements. So for instance, for gun violence, we actually have a, we have some of the few gun violence researchers um, in the nation in our department, because it's been throttled for so long and it's all violence. It's just research that we do without funding. Um, and so those articles have been you know, uh, published in the Chronicle, New York Times, that sort of thing, with little videos about the work that that, that, that we've done. There's been a lot of work um, with the Department of Medicine on the immigration, um, and as well as the refugee status. There's a refugee. Uh, there's an asylum clinic. So there's a lot of individual-focused um, efforts, but less so from an from an MEC uh, standpoint. I, what I think can happen sometimes is collectively there's a there's a there's a county medical there's a bi county medical group called the Alameda Contra Costa Medical Association, which is a sort of a subdivision of CMA, California Medical Association. And so sometimes that those bodies express more political um, and sort of opinion pieces and, and statements and they certainly come out in for and against various pieces of legislature as well as ballot initiatives. Um, but I wonder if MBC should could actually have like more of a more of a legal or a sort of activist, farm that we could have more, you know, uh, uh, public, public policy statements and uh, and public affairs statements on reasonable questions.
4: Well, and, and I suppose because I have seen some of those individual um, studies and names of people that I know who are who are in our system, it seems to me that their work ought to have a collective voice behind it that pushes some of these things that we know, in fact. Are damaging to the, to the community we right, serve, right, exactly. And and I just don't see us as a, a as a hospital system having that kind of voice. And and I would certainly think it would be worthy of certainly us considering something like that. So enough. That's that's what I was interested in. So, thank you, Dr.
8: Harker. Keep going. Uh, that's the end of my closed session report. Oh, we're in open session. I'm sorry. That's the end of my open session
0: (laughs) of POC report. (laughs) Uh, um, uh, I I have a standard practice now. I've been thinking about standard practices, so just to to give everyone the heads up. I will end every uh, presentation with the following question. Uh, With regard to your areas of accountability, do you have any concerns with with regards to the ability to execute safe and quality care? I'm going to put that as standard process for asking everybody. Given this is the QPSC, I think the biggest
8: challenge, this is something that I, I, I said in MEC yesterday, I think the biggest challenge we face right now is, of, is the budget crisis in that we as physician providers see the elimination of FTEs as a challenge in the context of the quality care that we provide. So we are all judged on metrics, which is totally reasonable, given that they are the appropriate metrics. If there's an elimination of FTEs, even if they are registration clerks, or techs to do EKGs and draw blood, I'm speaking from a purely emergency perspective. You know, if we have to eliminate 12 and a half FTEs in the emergency department, we clearly see that as a challenge in an already overcrowded, system and so I think that's part of that part of the tension that we that we are facing now in January we were in code red triage which is which is dangerously overcrowded uh, 25% of the time and it's not clear that it when in the situation of, of budgetary crisis and the elimination of FTEs it's not clear that those metrics by which we are judged and judging us I mean in terms of quality, safety, EKGs in the right amount of time, et cetera. It is not clear that that high-quality standard will be able to continue to be met. We're, we can only see more challenges ahead um, and more possibly overcrowding systems. Um, and I think that's the biggest issue that we are all
0: collectively nervous about, regardless of this time. Do you have comments on how to redress this? Loaded question. Yeah, it's uh, no.
8: I, I, it is. It is clearly a challenge that everyone is. is there's a. There's a certain amount of, of teeth gnashing uh, about the elimination of 400 FTEs in a system that is, you know, based on my my other departmental colleagues can will verify have been the entire hospital has been dangerously overcrowded, um, and I think that is the challenge that we all face. There's not an easy answer. Okay. Anything else you'd like to say,
0: Dr. Hart? Happy to be here. Thank you for that report. Dr. Maglong, came on. Good afternoon. Um,
9: for um, Alameda Hospital, um, there's, we've had discussions with our primary care clinic. So the MEC was presented with an update on the primary care clinic at Marina Village, and we're informed that the clinic will open in April. So the target date is April 9. Where there, um the mental the goal is to staff it with two uh, physicians And um, this will significantly improve the uh, um, access for uh, patients that will need uh, post-discharge follow-up and patients that will need um, primary care clinic at Alameda. So any
0: questions on that one? Any questions about primary care? So congratulations, this opening access is always good. Yes. Um, uh, And then uh, we look forward to more reports on that. Um, we also had discussions
9: with uh, primary care and specialty care access uh, post uh, hospitalization, and uh, Dr. Barria was kind enough to be at our MEC and answer questions and clarify certain processes for um, uh, post discharge follow up. There's still some challenge and opportunities, especially for specialty care clinics, um, where um, you know the MEC. Uh, you know, express concerns about um, uh, about the period of time waiting for these position patients that will need um, uh, specialty care uh, for, uh, after follow-up so that's still being addressed and discussed um, and, uh, and still uh, you know, we're, we're looking forward to um, finding you know being finding ways and in, 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 in which um, this area uh, of uh, concern can be addressed in the future. So. Keep coming. Okay, <laughs> and uh, the lastly, we have discussions on the emergency department transition plan. So healthcare uh, okay, medical group, we we'll are uh, health partners. will be staffing our emergency department effective April 1st. Um, Dr. Barry Simon informed by MEC that the um, April schedule is staff And that the search for the medical director in the emergency departments underway, and that candidates are currently being uh, interviewed um, for that. Great
8: news. Gene. Sorry, there's Uh a a late addition that I I I forgot. One of the challenges is that, um, as I mentioned, that with the budget cuts, we are in a uh, particular. Situation where it's not clear sort of where the cuts are happening, and obviously that's that's that's, a, that's a, a a topic that is very important to everybody right now. It's on the sort of the front of everyone's mind. One thing that is important, and I think that that I um, as a representative of the MEC, our request is to make sure that the um, budgetary oversight committee and the FTE committee actually have a clinician representative on it. Um, at this That's point, point. there is no one on the FT committee who is up, up finishing.
3: Have they not had one in the past, or is it only now? Because it's surprising that we... Yeah.
6: Okay.
3: Yeah. Uh, so That's a
6: good point. I am on the Budget Oversight Committee. Uh, I'm, I'm discussing with Delvecchio and Luis uh, who will serve. On that committee, Dr. Baden volunteered to be on that committee. We'd just like in the next 24 hours, we have somebody.
3: No, on office. an ongoing basis, physician and nurse um, representation has to be there on that committee. Thank you for making that point.
9: Yeah, it, it's the same sentiment that the Microsoft Alameda also has in terms of the uh, you know financial difficulties that we have. That you know perhaps that the physicians or and the has be involved consulted with with whatever FTEs that are going to be you know,
8: cut were right. And we understand the necessity of, of, of financial health and proper you know data percentage. We have no issue with that and it's very important however we would like to make sure that some of the clinical representation is on that I I invited
6: the uh, uh, Mr. Finney to come to the chair's hall on Monday. Mm-hmm. And they invited the chiefs of staff and uh, the president mm-hmm. of uh, Ocare, the mm-hmm. president of AHP. He he attended our chair's hall and he shared, uh, he, sh- you know, he shared his, his <coughs> plan and ideas. So we're working on, you know, finding this solution for this uh, for this plan.
0: Trustee Lawrence,
4: um, uh, how how does the, the medical staff um, set up uh, 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 the focus on the FTEs? is is a mer- understandable, yeah, but it's a narrow focus relative to a billion dollar budget. So, what is the process that the medical staff informs the administration of? of financial priorities in the organization. Um, As an example, you know, right now the two obvious things are the FTE and and our electronic health record. And so if you put those two things next to each other and you do a force field, how does that fall out with those people who are practicing medicine, uh,
0: Trustee Lawrence? I think that's an excellent dialogue. I think we probably have uh, a couple people who best poised to answer that. Dr. Jamoladin and then uh, Drs. Hearn and Maglong could, 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 if you guys would tag team on this answer for Trustee Lawrence. Yeah,
6: just if I can start, I mean that's a message that the, the chairs. We're telling the vector is that we will be part of the solution. Just we will be part of the solution in terms of prioritization, identifying non-value-added steps, and uh, and seeing where we can really uh, uh, be more effective in uh, in helping with the decision making.
4: So from my perspective, it ought to be an institutionalized system so that we're not responding to every time we have a budget issue, we round up the usual suspects and we go through a process, but rather a systemic uh, embedded process that is is there permanently so that you get the input of the individuals who are in fact practicing medicine, but they also have to be tuned into some of the financial matters that are weighing the organization down and the things that our board currently deals with and have to make decisions about. Yes. So, you know, collective bargaining certainly is one of those things, but there, there are a whole lot of other things that we have been spending money on, and it would be nice to know that, well, you, well, I see your name on some of the contracts. I don't know that that is a priority within the organization, but rather it's something that the organization needed and the doctors said it's okay. So uh, in, in embedding, that kind of process seems to me to be something that ought to be occurring.
8: Dr. Hunt? Um, I think part of the challenge, too, is that as I understand it, and I'm not a department chair, we can ask the department chairs. Further input, as I understand it, budgetary questions regarding FTEs, et cetera, traditionally are nurse-driven. So nurse managers see their budgets. There are many chairs who only just now have gotten access to look at the the budgets within their clinical departments. Um, I think that sort of highlights some of the disconnect. Is that that physician contracts are, are, are sort of separate, and physicians in charge of entire departments just are only recently looking at their looking at their departmental budgets as an example. And you know, we see yesterday that the head of anesthesia realized that laundering services for OR scrubs, etc., are under his department. He said, "That's really strange. I mean, that, why should that be under anesthesia?" So it was just interesting that, 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 as an example, that the department chairs are only now getting access to their budgets to help with that long-term discussion.
0: Okay. Dr. So Jamaluddin, can you comment on, steps, I apologize, okay. on, on the relationship between the FTE committee and the budget oversight committee?
6: So the budget oversight committee, uh, like, looks at the number of dollars, you know, projected for the next uh, fiscal year plus the corrective actions that we are doing for the current fiscal year. Mm. And then we look also at the FTE in terms of the reduction. But with every FTE uh, committee meeting, uh, they invite the clinical leader or administrative leader to present to the FTE committee. So even though I'm not sitting on the committee, but if Palau is going to present <coughs> Or if uh, like a department like ED is going to be presented, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, you know, I'm invited to that committee. But we you know? The medical staff and I support this. So does the Becca We have like an appointed person. We discussed with uh, Dr. Hearn like uh, different scenarios because uh, it takes long time, and the department chairs have a uh, you know, lot of other things to do, but. It, uh, uh, the, the agreement, at least from the medical staff perspective, is to have one person attend and mm-hmm. link with the medical staff or with
0: myself. Do, uh, does the FTE uh, committee report to the Budget Oversight yes, Committee, or do they, so the FTE, FTE mm-hmm. committee is a subcommittee of the yeah, Budget Oversight Committee? It's, it's a separate committee, but eventually it will go into the. But in current yeah. state, they run in parallel at same in the same level? They Okay. Yeah, I mean. And there's, and just for our understanding, there, there's no formal voting medical staff representation on either?
6: Uh, there is no voting in the FTE committee. There's no voting
0: in the FTE committee?
6: I, I, I mean, there's have uh, like uh, three people in the FTE committee that, you know, were, were looking at the FTEs. But if there's a position that the physicians feel uh, it's important, they escalate to me and I go back to, uh, you know, Luis and to say well this is an important position.
4: Now, I can still see this conversation being uh, I don't want to say myopic but being very single single addressed. and it's not talking about we're, we're about to enter into the budget phase, the budget building phase for the organization. And um, we know that we have some serious concerns because our margins, our profit margins, are below what what expected. We're about to enter into a very expensive, much needed health record process. And and, and I don't, I'm trying to understand how a system with all its various parts feed into The whole of the decisions relative to what is a priority in this system for us. Um, So we get little bits and pieces, but we don't. I don't know what the process is that that informs how that budget is put together.
6: So, I mean, uh, obviously we are entering now into finance discussion and uh, the clinical leadership role in the finance discussion. And you are absolutely right. Looking at the FTE committee is but one factor among multiple Mm -hmm. factors. And, uh, you know, what I've been trying to do uh, throughout my tenure here is really to uh, build the physician leadership in terms of- Dr. Allen, please report to the OR.
1: Dr. Allen. For the in terms
6: of, of learning and building skills in, 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 in management and operational efficiency, not uh, only in the clinical skills and quality and safety, but also building, uh, looking for opportunities for expanding service time in a sustainable right. way. And uh, that's what I've been working with uh, obviously the chiefs of staff, but also with the department chairs and, uh, and directors of services. Uh, in order to have a dashboard uh, that has a quality and safety component, but also will have a financial component. We are not trained to look at the, at the budget. We are not trained as physicians to, to look at uh, how, how we, we can be like clean and, and effective. And we have a lot of uh, like, thinking to solve the problem by, 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 by hiring like, people or buying machines so we have to really develop uh, our ability in uh, in, in, uh, in in thinking at the system level and see how we can like uh, move on w- with this. And at the end of the day, uh, cost and value could be different sometimes. That's right. right? Absolutely. So so we have to, to really see why we are here. And uh, yes, we want to to uh, to bend the cost curve. But our value, you know, has to stay the same order to deliver the safest and the highest quality care and value for our patients, our community.
2: And, and if, if I could just interject in, in terms of the process point, that uh, you raised trust in So, you know, the budgeting process began back earlier in the year with the planning process around what would be... Um, the primary objectives for this coming year, and establish those primary objectives to have a sense of what would be meaning in terms of resources that would then inform the, uh, the budgeting decisions. The, the
4: Who's establishing those primary objectives?
2: So, that's I'm to,
4: oh, I'm sorry. So, I so the,
2: the, the process begins with the review of the objectives from the prior year. Um, and one of those objectives sort of informs what's needed for the coming year, uh, what new things have come up, what the sense is of the organizational capability to take on new or different things. And it starts with the recommendation from the executive leadership team that these should be the primary objectives for this particular year. And in this uh, year, primarily our focus was on not adding anything to the mix, given all the things that were coming up and what we're looking at. That was sort of the general approach. Um, those objectives that are proposed by the executive leadership team then become the subject of a offsite with leaders throughout the organization, about 300 leaders down to the manager level, um, and that offsite is designed to bring everyone up to speed as to the current state. So there was discussion about you know the issues that we're dealing with with our current budget. Uh, and then to have the discussion with them about this is what we see the organization being able to do in the coming year. This is where our focus will be uh, in soliciting impact or, excuse me, feedback from those managers with regard, you know, to those primary initiatives. The, uh, the actual process includes an overview presentation on the big picture and then breakout sessions with the leaders of each of them. So there was a breakout session on the population health initiative, a breakout session on the EHR initiative, a breakout session on uh, the operational efficiency um, initiative where each of the leaders, so for example, David and Luis, you know, with regard to efficiency, um, the uh, CIO and the CMIO on the uh, electronic health records, um, and um, I'm just sort of blanking on who the other, pre- so, uh, Tangerine and uh, Tanvir, you know, on the uh, the quality uh, population health initiatives, where they walk through with the leaders, you know, what those entail, what's anticipated, what's going to be the ask of them in the course of the coming year with respect to those initiatives, and it's an opportunity for them, you know, to tell us, you know, what the, the issues that they see with pursuing those particular objectives, you know, and, you know, where they might see a disconnect or a you know that sort of thing then you know subsequent to that is when we come to a conclusion about what the objectives will be for the coming year that then sort of lay out the parameters for what we need to look at you know from the standpoint of you know a budget from the operational side to marry up with what we already know is the piece on the other side of it as well too and so and then that process then leads to the you know, the development of a budget target, which goes out across the organization in each department, and I think, I don't know how it's done in all departments. I think they all have a little bit different of a process, (coughs) but they basically develop what they're doing um, uh, in the context of the the target that has been established. AND THEN THERE ARE INDIVIDUAL PRESENTATIONS, YOU KNOW, WITH EACH OF THEM, um, AND THE BUDGET COMMITTEE, WHICH IS, YOU KNOW, THE FINANCIAL FOLKS, YOU KNOW, OPERATIONAL FOLKS, uh, TO TRY AND GET WHAT IS BEING REQUESTED FROM THE DEPARTMENTS WITHIN WHAT HAS BEEN TARGETED AS, YOU KNOW, BEING POSSIBLE FOR THE NEXT YEAR'S BUDGET. SO, YOU KNOW, THE PROCESS, YOU KNOW, IS SORT OF, YOU KNOW, BACK AND FORTH, YOU KNOW, IDEAS PUT FORTH, YOU KNOW, FEEDBACK solicited, AND THEN DECISIONS MADE GOING FORWARD. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so we had actually invited the trustees to that session where we did the feedback uh, with everyone, but I think it just didn't work out from a timing standpoint. Um,
7: so I have a question though about just keeping this question about um, where the priorities are in spending and so on. I'm always amazed that the people closest to the work see the work and see the efficiencies or inefficiencies. And I hope we're embracing the idea that while there's oversight, there's careful planning, I think that's what we have to do to be um, good stewards. And yet, we need to ask our frontline staff, if you see something that seems, (coughs) I'm going to use the word wasteful or or inefficient, I hope we have a process to engage our staff in, in saying, Hey, we might save some money if we do X different or if we try these things. And that spirit, which is part of lean culture, does I think exist. I just don't know if we have a, a specific way to capture that kind of feedback from our frontline people.
0: Doctor Hearn, Dr. Magalong, commentary please. Yeah. No,
8: I I I think that's absolutely true and I think that's I mean that's the best part about having a clinician who the medical staff trusts to be in that role. Where we can do we can expand into a bunch of different service lines and do a lot of things sort of crappy, um, or we can realize that we have some really excellent, high value, highly efficient service lines, and maybe some that we don't do very well and, and that we spend a lot of resources for. And I think that is, those are those are hard conversations to have, but if it's somebody that we trust in that, on those committees, I think that that's super helpful. And, and the MEC, all the, the, the chairs have unanimously suggested that Rachel, as a very balanced and, and a reasonable person uh, would be a great balanced, I use the word balanced, it's okay. uh, would be a reasonable um, addition to that committee. Dr. Mangal. Yeah, so um, may I echo the sentiment? Those are excellent points, which the medical
9: staff at Alameda have the same issues too, but what, where to where give feedback. Um, the um, governance structure of Alameda's community hospital is different from Highland, where we are not departmentalized and physicians don't have any input towards uh, budgeting uh, you know in terms from their department so um, as an update you know our medical staff uh, committee bylaws committee have, have met and are in the pr- uh, we've met twice already and in the process of um, uh, assessing our, our bylaws to align with regulatory standards print laws and improve governance structures so we are looking at you know, whether to be committees or departmentalized. But again, that issue about, you know, if you're a department chair, you're in charge of budgeting for your department, which is not what's happening at our community hospital. So there's certainly, you know, maybe some input from the board or from administration as to what, so we can align with how, how the, the system wants to structure itself. Um, um, right. Currently, you know, position leaders and meter are all voluntary.
7: Mm-hmm.
9: Time that they spend doctoring, reviewing, attending the
0: meetings, they're all voluntary. Mm-hmm.
7: Thank you. Thank you.
0: So, so a question to both of you, uh, kind of a firm question. So we, we, we opened this, uh, this session talking about the triple point, which was uh, – the, sorry, the triple aim, which was, one more time, patient satisfaction, population health and managing the cost of care. So do you believe that our system is optimized to give the clinical input to guide these three aims at this time? And if so, what specific recommendations would you make? Or, sorry, if not, what specific recommendations would you make?
8: Tough question. I think that because it is. I'm here to ask a tough yeah. question. No, it's no problem. Um, <laughs> no, uh, optimized. I would say know. I would think that, um, you know, in our minds, having, you know, clinician input at every level is 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 truly the ideal, um, and substantive, um, representative clinician input. I think that's incredibly important. Um, so, but I think that we're pretty good at it. Um, I think it. You know it perhaps
3: could be better, just as we've been talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I remember during uh, the time of Mark Fratsky, you had those dyad things where you had, like, the management clinical staff working closer together. How, how did that work? And is that still continuing in any sense with that? Was that helpful at all in terms of, like, getting the, um, you know, the perspectives from the ground to the suits?
8: Um, from the ground of the suits, I'm not sure that, uh, as chairs, do you have dyads set up with with members of administration, or is it just sort of one-on-one with Dr. Maladine? As I understand, it, it's the chairs meet with Dr. Baladin regularly, and he incorporates their opinions, and, and, and that you guys, as chairs, do you feel as though the dyads are working well?
0: Of those words means. So, uh, just to reflect for the for the audio record, uh, Dr. Hearn is directing questions to Dr. Rachel Baden, the chair of medicine, and Dr. Sophie Shabel, the chair of OB/GYN.
10: So Who were put question. on the spot
0: and they didn't know that they'd be Sorry. put on the spot. Yeah, thank you. By the way.
10: So, I think there's a general question of whether I think the dyads are working. Meaning, are are we are we functioning well with our administ- administrative partners? And I would say the answer to that is. Yes, um, we meet with Dr. Jamaluddin if he's considered part of my dad, and I meet with him on a regular basis. I probably talk to him every single day. Um, I also talk to Paula just about every day, if not ten times a day. So I think that there is, for me, a um, to Dr. Jamaluddin and uh, Dr. Barria, a close working relationship. I personally reviewed all of the ambulatory budget that was relevant to my department. With line by line with Paulov, um, and then just yesterday, Dr. Jamaline and I reviewed um, the budget, the, the budgets that are in his cost center. Um, and then tomorrow, I will be sitting down with Dr. I mean, Mr. John Chapman to review um, the relevant budgets within the acute. So, um, I don't think it's hardwired in terms of our budget process. I think we are learning as we go. Um, but I do hope that we can hardwire a process whereby all the physician leadership can engage, and uh, where we feel that the clinician voice is represented. Um, And I think we're figuring that out, um, is is the answer to that question. Thank you,
2: Dr. May. Dr.
0: Shabel, and then John
10: Chapman. Um, Yeah, I don't have a lot to add to what Rachel
7: said, but I would echo um, the fact that I meet regularly with Dr. Jamaluddin, I speak with Dr. Barbaria. Maybe not quite as much as Rachel, but a lot. I also meet with John regularly. Um, I haven't had the same involvement in the budget process. I'm aware of what's happened, but it's been because I've asked. Um, So we don't really have a formal structure in my department to be involved in budgetary decisions yet, but I think that um, there are a lot of people asking for that and get the feeling it's coming.
1: It's just not formalized. Thank you. Mr. Chapman.
11: I'm only up here to try to answer the question about dyad partnerships. Um, The dyad partnership was put in at the time of Mark Fratsky was operation councils. So my dyad partner is the ACMO for Highland. Right now it's vacant, but when that's filled, that's my dyad partner. It's supposed to go all the way down to the department level. So for instance, in radiology, it would be Heather Duke with Eric Yasimoto. We have a position and operations lead. Mm -hmm. Same thing in the emergency room, lab, and so forth. Um, So I just want to clarify how that structure was set up. And then in those operations councils, you're supposed to have staff Mm -hmm. and at times union representation to find those ideas and move them up the chain from the department operations council up to the division council to the hospital operations council. Here it's called the Highland Leadership Team. Does that help a little bit? No, that does. Thank you. Okay.
7: But oh, sure. Yes, and the only context for behavioral health that I'd like to add is very much, as has been mentioned, our our physician leaders are a very close partner, and I personally work with them. I think the difference for us, we look at it operationally um, first in terms of what do we need. We also look at volumes and so forth. And so I know that there's been a transition for behavioral health. Medical leadership, but for the most part, we're looking at it based on continuity of care operations and how to maintain it. And that's been very helpful to me and um, them together to start informing kind of budgetary decisions and the needs, whether we're meeting that. I
3: really like that the continuity volume mm-hmm. I and mean, the operational, and I think that should be hardwired into the rest of the hospital system as well. Right
0: Thank and you. left hand together, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, Chiefs, any, any other questions? Issues. Anything you'd like to say? I'll, uh, again, I'll end. I'll end with this standard work question. Do you have any concerns with regards to, ability, to the ability to execute safe and quality care under your under your watch? Apart from what we've all discussed, anything else to say? Nothing. No staff. Okay.
8: Thank you. Oh, actually, I do, and that is that. <laughs> sorry. That one of the greatest challenges I think we also face is that that uh, that. Uh, the Quality Department has, is remarkably understaffed right now. There's been a lot of uh, people who have left recently so while they're actively searching. Uh, Tanvir went from a staff of seven to a staff of three, I believe. Sorry, he's not here. But, um, but that is, I think, a, a, a major challenge in all of the he has to do in terms of compliance, in terms of risk, quality, quality counsel. He has a lot on his plate. And now that the Chief Nurse Executive is out on medical leave, he also has other direct reports in right. that division to him now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that is uh, on top of many people's minds in terms of his ability is to not get burned out. the right. resilience, um, but have adequate staff to actually do a very important job. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: right. Thank you for Dr.
8: Jamalini. Uh, just uh, thank you, Dr. Hearn.
6: Uh, that was the same. They were saying nice things about so uh, it. Uh, <laughs> uh, the no, no, <laughs> there was uh, a, an expression of concern about your department because of the people who left. So just tell us about your recruitment uh, progress, who you are recruiting in terms of you, because you're building your team, I know, and you're
5: restructuring from ground up. So yes, just tell so us what um, you are. As you know, under uh, the Department of, so I use the academic approach of so the Department of Quality, we have four, uh, we have historically had three divisions. One, what was called the quali- uh, Quality Programs. And we have restructured that to move away from the thinking that it, uh, that quality is just responsible for reporting the programs. It's really about achieving quality and outcomes. So we have, um, we have one final interview to do for the Director of Quality and Outcomes who will oversee quality um, and analytics. Um, so that last interview should happen next week and we have excellent candidates, one of which is a physician trained in quality, another an engineer trained in quality, another a nurse trained in quality. We um, have also closed um, our recruitment for, um, so actually, I just got a text message from Dr. Deborah Ellis who um, has been here as a contractor, does an uh, incredible job in infection prevention and control, and she's uh, accepted the offer. So she will stay here. We're very lucky to have her. I'm very excited about that. Um, And then historically, um, risk and accreditation have reported up to, uh, to Adrian Smith, which is a significant body of work at our organization because we have a lot of opportunity to continue developing infrastructure. Um, so risk uh, includes patient safety, um, what I have uh, historically seen called patient relations, which is complaint and grievances as well as med malpractice. And then on the accreditation space, as you know, it's we have three licenses, uh, a yearly visit, um, and then uh, licensing issues um, um, as, well as, as well as other regulatory issues. We're actually going to make sure that we have an increased effort on patient safety. We're recruiting a director of patient safety um, and that should close very soon. Um, and Adrian will remain overseeing we're calling regulatory affairs, which is accreditation licensing. Um, I have full confidence that all of those positions will be recruited and completed in the next week or two. Excellent. So, and I'm very excited by the team we're uh, uh, collecting and creating. To, and and uh, I'm thankful to the organization that uh, they have supported these positions because we have some important work to do. Thank you, Thank you. Yes. Um, Dr. Chu is not uh, present. He uh, is excused for
0: uh, his presentation. He gave a one-page presentation which is in the packet for the Board of Trustees, which summarizes that. So with that, we will close. Uh, Before I close the Chief of Staff report, I want to thank everyone. That was brave and honest dialogue. That's what we should be doing in this meeting. So thank you to staff. Thank you to docs. Thank you to trustees. Hopefully we can continue to do more of that in our continuous path for improvement. So with that, I close out item C, uh, the medical staff reports. Uh, we'll now move to item E, the SBU quality metric report. Um, we have a fearsome threesome, uh, Dr. Dramaldi, and Dr. Babari, and Dr. Hussain.
6: We're going to focus on the ambulatory care metrics. So maybe we can present Dr. Babari, present the ambulatory care metrics. Okay. And then you have uh, members of your team here also. Is there any new member you want to
12: know? No new members today. We've had a good, wonderful, superstar stable team that is all here today. Uh, obviously, I really love coming to present to you guys to just have the robust dialogue that we have every time. So please interrupt me, ask me questions as I go along, So I want this to be valuable and meaningful for everyone who is here today. Um, So a few updates. Uh, When I had to submit these slides to get them in, obviously, you know, for the deadline to be presented. At that time, I'm not sure if you guys have heard, but we did have an upgrade to Sorian Financials to allow for improved financial reporting for our physician revenue um, back on September 1st. One of the unfortunate unintended consequences of that upgrade is it disrupted all of our downstream quality reporting metrics. So for many months, we did not have prime, accurate, updated prime data or quality data. Um, I'm really pleased to announce that since that time, this has been fixed. We have revalidated and updated all of our metrics, but that has only happened in the last few days. Um, So we don't have sort of detailed quality metrics on some of our clinical aspects, but definitely the next time I'm here, I'll be presenting that in greater detail. So this slide is always challenging to read. I'm gonna be doing a deeper dive focusing mostly on access. And you'll see that this is our ambulatory SBU dashboard. The first top five metrics are really the things we're tracking in terms of access, looking at our no-show rates for primary and specialty care, looking at our third next available appointments, and then looking at the alternative visit types um, that we'll be progressing through, both e-consults and telephone visits that we're already doing some of and hope to increase over time. Um, So we'll just do a deeper dive. And then obviously the quality metrics grayed out because at the time this dashboard was published they were unavailable.
0: Dr. Barbara, can you go back to that slide? Mm-hmm. So so I know we have six pillars and we talked about it. This is the third SBU report where I've seen where the workforce pillar was not addressed uh, in, in terms of metrics. Can you comment on workforce pillar and, and the presentation of that data?
12: Absolutely. So I think, you know, the the dashboards are hard because we need a metric to track to put on here and we know you know I think across our organization workforce is absolutely critical um, partly why it's not on the is because I don't have a great metric that is ambulatory specific to be tracking for that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we actually one of our directors Holly Garcia who I don't could be here today. She um, is unavailable, but part of her revised scope and work in ambulatory is specifically to focus on in addition to patient experience, which she's been doing for a while, provider and staff engagement and experience. So she's been doing sort of exhaustive great work looking at best practices from our peer institutions, national best practice, um, working on focus groups and communication surveys with our folks in ambulatory to see how do we actually get our staff and our providers you know, engaged but also satisfied in the work that we are doing so i'm hoping that as she builds out project plans for that work we'll be able to identify specific metrics that we can add on this dashboard moving forward but it's definitely an area of development
0: so certainly not too unique to this sbu presentation i just find it a curiosity we've identified it as a pillar but we don't know how to measure or manage it so something to think about for all of us going forward
2: so so just to be clear there is a on the system dashboard right. workforce is addressed mm-hmm. these presentations are really focused on the quality issues for each of the SBUs, mm-hmm. so that's why they would not so have it. I guess the argument one could make the supposition that the
0: workforce uh, and the, uh, uh, is, is an important uh, measure and variable in the ability to execute quality work.
7: At the SBU
0: level, at the, even at the SBU level,
7: and it cuts across all of them. And you know? it, yeah,
12: absolutely. And Gina and I are actually doing a series of focus groups with all of our wellness centers, specifically focusing on provider sustainability in primary care, which we know is a nationwide problem and not one that our institution is immune to. That's informed by the burnout survey that was done by the MEC earlier this year. As a follow-up, that you know we know here are some of the challenges. How do we actually construct um, system interventions so that we're not just Saying, "Hey, here's something to make you feel better when you're feeling down," but you know, what are the root causes of why um, some of our job descriptions are not sustainable, and how do we create systems to alleviate that? So, we're looking forward to hearing all the great suggestions from our providers. Any other questions on that? It's okay. Um, so, we're going to do deep dive on access for both primary and specialty care. So, my entire team is here. As you know, the last time we were here, we had a uh, a very ambitious timeline and agenda for what we were gonna change. So I am pleased to report we are um, still on track. So for primary care, we implemented our template standardization project. So all of our primary care service lines, that's adult medicine, family medicine, pediatrics and women's, went on to a single standard template in February and March of 2018. Um, So Raphael, I'm gonna have you tell the group how many templates and activity types did we have before and what are we down to now for primary care?
6: Yeah, so we, sorry, Rafael is Director of Inventory Integration and Access. Uh, so, I'm gonna pick this up. Uh, so before we had about 1,100 templates, uh, roughly 600 were just for primary care. Now for adults, we only have two templates, new and established, uh,
5: family medicine, new established, pediatrics, new established, and women's, just one template. That's
3: phenomenal.
5: Yeah, it took a lot
6: of effort from all members, those who were creating the builds, those, dancers, the users, the providers, staff, um, you know, we're still learning from it. We've only been live for four and a half, five weeks now, and um, you know, looking forward to more opportunities too as we go for specialties, so it great.
12: I think at the time that I pulled this data um, this is from February data the TNA had already dropped from our baseline of 54.12 days for adult medicine down to 29.95 this is before all the templates rolled out I just got a preview from a quality department about the data that we submitted to the county today um, and for adult medicine it's now down to 16 days wow. well. um, awesome. I, I will tell everyone this has not been an easy road for anyone there's obviously you know, bumps that we've uncovered in the implementation opportunities to improve our communication and training plan. And so we are learning from that so that, you know, when the medicine department undergoes their specialty template standardization project in June, you know, you guys will benefit from all the hiccups we've had with primary care. And we won't make the same mistakes twice, I promise. Um, But this is also, I want to highlight, just a huge shift for our providers. I think part, a lot of our access problems for the templates, but a lot of it is our own clinical practice. That we want to give patients an appointment every time they walk out that door. Come back a year from now. No one is going to remember that piece of paper a year from now. And every time we do that, it means that when people call us with serious issues, I have chest pain, I have shortness of breath, something's not right with my baby, we can't accommodate them. Um, And so a lot of this is really, you know, we are working as we transition to open access where we are asking our providers to trust our patients, train our patients. Let's teach them how to navigate the system as opposed to sort of, you know, paternalistically just giving them appointments when they leave so that they can really be engaged in their health. And moving to a system where, you know, yes, our vulnerable patients who are high risk, we will help navigate them. But for everyone else who's, you know, mostly able-bodied, that they can call us when they need to, and we can guarantee same-day and next-day availability. But you can imagine if you have not been practicing that way for 30 years, um, it's a huge shift. And so that is an area where, you know, we consistently get a lot of feedback. It, It is, it is challenging, and we're continuing to really engage all of our medical directors and providers and provide training and support to move in that direction.
7: Just just a a fine point about that, but we are, I hope, just reminding people that making something up, you know, the mammogram needs to be done every year. They may not make that appointment that day for a year later, but we are reminding them. Oh, yeah, I'm so glad you asked that.
12: So the way, you know, we are working is that basically for all of the chronic conditions, you're a diabetic, you have hypertension, you're due for your mammogram, you have colon cancer, we have registry reports, we've had those for a long time so that we can do active outreach to any patient who's overdue either for a blood test, a mammogram, colon cancer screening, that we proactively, you know, Raphael's teams will scrub with, list every single month and actively get all of those patients in. But if someone's healthy and doesn't need anything, they can call us and obviously come see us whenever they need to, the same way we all access mm-hmm. our own health care.
4: But to that question, to um, is how do you track follow-up for an, an acute visit if someone leaves and they don't necessarily need a next available? But they have some acute, uh, some, they were treated
3: for something um, that That we are expecting them to comply with the treatment plan?
12: Um, So, if they don't need any specific follow up, you know, the patient, it's patient generated. When you're sick or when you need us, come contact us. We do have a tickler system that, you know, we can manually add people. So it's like, oh, you have this lung nodule. You don't fall into this, you know, normal category, but we need to see you in six months to get a repeat CT scan. They would get manually added to that list and then automatically get outreach from us to follow up. But that's a great question. Any other questions on slide? Um, sorry, and before I actually, sw- I, p- I should have put a bullet point on here. But our new patient access has improved dramatically. So for our wait times now for new patients um, at Hayward, Eastmont, and Newark, um, patients can get in within a week. Highland is about two and a half weeks now, so a little bit longer. But you know, we are we have tons of primary care access, and we keep telling our ED colleagues, please send us all your patients from the ED who need primary care follow up.
0: Um, And and for everyone to stop and take a moment on what Dr. Barbario is saying, this is the best it has ever been in the history of this organization.
5: So So
0: access for primary care is the best that it's ever been in the history of this organization. So kudos to her. And as they heard, there's going to be a new primary care practice in Almeida. In April.
12: Absolutely, and I'm sure all those patients in Alameda will be so happy to be able to stay on the island instead of schlepping schlepping around. So I just wanted to give a little bit of insight into sort of how we've been able to move the needle on some of these access metrics. So this is really all Catherine Horner, our VP of Ambulatory. Um, when she came on, you know, she was really like, "We are not monthly dashboard. Like, how do we respond on a monthly basis? That is way too far away." And so she has painstakingly been hand creating this dashboard on a weekly basis um, for all of our service lines. So you know, the details aren't important. What it basically has is a number of access metrics. You know, how big is your backlog? If This is a specialty scorecard. How many, what's your third next available for new patients, for return patients? Do you have open encounters, which is a marker of, you know, how much outstanding documentation and unbuilding Um, charges we have, which obviously matters to our sustainability. And it's down to the nitty gritty site and service line level. So a manager at any site can say, you know, GI, here's what's happening in GI at Highland, here's what's happening in podiatry at um, Eastmont, here's what's happening at podiatry at K7. And so you'll just see, you know, she started sending this out, our entire ambulatory leadership team, so all the supervisors and above, plus all of the division chiefs and chairs and medical directors, so really reinforcing that clinical dyad with the administrative partner, co-accountability, get this on a weekly basis to review and think through what's going on. You know, sometimes it's you have a provider out sick or on FMLA, and, and there's reasons for this. Mm-hmm. Other times, it's really just looking at the data and thinking strategically. And um, just by showing the data alone, you'll see from December to February, way more stuff is in green. Yep than yep. it was before. And that's oh, really just the system. power of data Open encounter is where a patient shows up for a clinic visit and is registered and then okay. we never, in most cases it's that we haven't submitted a bill. And so that patient was seen, services were rendered and we just never charged for it. There's other reasons for open encounters but that's one of the most common. Yeah.
7: And this is the stupid person question. These are actual numbers. This isn't a percentage, right? This is yeah, absolute
12: people. numbers, yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, thanks. Dr. Barbary, can I take a moment of your time here? Because, you know, these are just two or three slides, but there's a lot of power and work behind these slides. Could you please take a moment to identify your team and, 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 and orient the board to who your team is and the work that they do?
12: Yeah, absolutely. And sorry for not doing that earlier, Tep. I know we did that last time. So at each of our wellness sites, we have a local leadership team, which is the practice manager and the medical director. Um, In the areas for specialty, we don't have specialty medical directors, so it's usually the division chiefs and the chairs that serve in that function, Um, as well as a patient services supervisor who oversees our registration staff at that local site and a nursing supervisor who oversees all of the clinical and non-provider staff at that site. The providers usually report up to either the division chief for the medical director. At the system level, the team is me, and then Catherine Horner, who's our VP of Ambulatory. Can you make her stand up, please. <laughs> yes, and I was, I was gonna actually have her walk us through this in a little bit more detail, too, but um, Rafael Vacarano is right next to her, who's our director of patient integration and access, who oversees all of our registration staff, call center, and referral units, who's really you know the engine behind access and scheduling for our whole system. Uh, Steve Kilber, sitting over there, who's our director of nursing, and is really leading the charge on elevating Nursing practice and clinical practice you know, which includes our medical assistance and everyone's clinical competencies across ambulatory as we move towards team-based care. Holly Garcia, who's our Director of Operations, who's not here today but has been our administrative lead for Prime, all of the waiver work, all of our quality improvement work, um, and now working on patient experience and staff and provider experience and engagement because as Taft pointed out, that's such a critical part of what we need to be doing better as we move forward. And then Dr. Neha Gupta, who is is um, our medical director for Prime and pretty much you know our quality improvement whiz for all of the ambulatory. Um, like That's Dr. Blake Gregory, who's one of our medical directors at K Six Adult Medicine. Okay. Um, so maybe, Catherine, is there anything else you want to add about the scorecard, in your experience, sort of building it, sending it out? <laughs> no, I mean I think um, the fact that it's manual now is not is not where we want to be in a few months, but it is it is where we're at right now, and I, I do just want to reiterate, just sharing data and tr- making it transparent and making people know what we're looking at and what we think is important is um, a really strong strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, How many hours sorry. does this take, uh, <laughs> <laughs> literally? I just literally
7: tell us, how many hours? How long does do it take, take you to? <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, no, I mean, I have standard work. It takes me about an hour. Oh, okay, yeah. wow. To build
0: the the process to get to that took her a long time.
12: Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, you know, we PDCA'd it. Um, I think this is the second or third iteration of it. But it makes sure that I know the numbers really well, which I think is amazing. Thank you. you. Um, And now we're piloting new things with this. So when we send out the scorecard every week, we also use this as an opportunity to have an ambulatory wide newsletter. So we send other system wide updates, shout outs to our amazing teams that are doing great work. So, you know, Taft is receiving end can tell you whether or not he finds that information cumbersome or valuable, but. um,
0: All good data illuminates the way.
12: (laughs) And I do want to just go back, since Dr. Blake Gregory is here. Blake, we were talking about template standardization, and as we move towards open access, sort of just, you know, the the cultural challenge, as we try to send out, Patients and and have them you know call us back in use registries. So I would love for you to just maybe share with the group the work you're doing with the medical directors and some of the data-driven audits you've done, especially on our non-English-speaking patients. There's a mic up there.
0: Dr. Blake Gregory.
1: Yeah. So um, back in December we. Um, were really inspired by the scorecards that Catherine sent out because we were in the red for our third next available appointment, and so that was a great nudge for us to kind of look at how we schedule patients um, and improve our access, and so we went through a whole kind of iterative process where we... um, so, whereby we changed our scheduling standard work. So it, for years and years it used to be that every patient that walked in the door had an appointment. When they would be checked out, they would leave with an appointment in hand. We would do whatever it took to make sure they left with an appointment, even if it was four months or six months out. So we. But there's also plenty of literature to support that the farther out you book a patient, the less likely they are to show for that appointment. So um, again, we did a lot of work with our providers and with our staff. And um, we sort of got to a point where we felt like probably that standard work was not necessary and that actually probably the majority of our patients were perfectly capable of picking up the phone and calling us. We've done a lot of work around phone access and the call center is highly functional and so we felt pretty comfortable um, sort of making the move to um, it no longer being the default that every patient would walk out with an appointment. So now, um, in current state, providers have to specifically flag the sort of highest risk, most vulnerable patients that must walk out with an appointment. It's a small minority and the rest are asked to call. And so there, there have been some, you know, kind of, um, you know, changes in sort of resetting expectations both for patients and providers. But I will say that um, we have cut our TNAA by 50%. So our baseline TNAA was for return patients was 43 days in October. Um, the last scorecard it was 21, and so, and so that, that drop in 50% happened over that four to six weeks. So it's very dramatic. Um, but of course, you know, people have uh, rightfully raised concerns: are these are these patients who are told to call? Back, or are they actually calling? And are, they, you know, are they getting the follow-up that they need? And so we have done um, some uh, audits and reviews, specifically of our non-English speaking patients, because that was the biggest concern for folks, is could these man-speaking patients degree speaking patients navigate our phone line? And we've actually found that they are. They're coming back. Very few are getting lost to follow-up. Um, and so we're very reassured by that. Um, and so I, and hopefully that's gonna help sort of steer the, the future scheduling processes.
12: Thanks, Blake.
6: Thank you. Dr. Jamaldi. Uh, Sorry, Blake, since you are here, I know it's not on the agenda. Can you briefly tell us about what you did with respect to team structuring and and employee engagement? I know that this work was recognized because we're talking about the fourth aim and part of the fourth aim is really healthcare, uh, uh, like employee and physician engagement. So just very briefly.
1: Yeah, very briefly. So we, we got a grant through the Center for Care Innovations to do some work around employee engagement. Um, and we did a, a lot of different things, actually. Um, but um, the we were just written up as a case study by the Center for Care Innovations for the work that they did, that we did, excuse me, um, they made a video about us that we're really proud of. And um, anyway, so uh, what, what um, Dr. Jamaldeen is, is referring to is, is a project that we designed, it's called No Good Deed Goes Unnoticed, because I think one thing we found in clinic is that our staff felt very unrecognized for the great work that they do every single day. And so we created this little you know, very, you know, sort of modest process. We have little monopoly um, bills of monopoly money stationed in clinic and whenever you see anybody doing great work, we ask you to grab a piece of monopoly money and write your name, the person's name, and then what their good deed was. And then we have these recognition ceremonies every month to honor people. We give it these little rinky-dink prizes um, just, you know, as a symbol of we we honor you, we we acknowledge the great work that you've done. And so we've had, you know, um, really tremendous improvements in our employee engagement responses Um, we over a period of eight months we um, improved the positive responses to a Gallup 12 employee engagement survey we um, had improvement in 11 out of the 12 questions uh, more positive responses over the period of eight months Um, and so I think a lot of that work is sort of reflected in, in the scores that we've been seeing
12: I just want to recognize Blake. You know, Blake and the team sort of did this on their own, right? There was no system support. They found the survey, they administered the survey, and Survey Monkey. They sort of put the entire project together, start to finish, in such a meaningful but also data-driven way, which has really been inspirational to see.
0: So they were managing their own pillar.
12: Mm-hmm. Could, could you send us the link to that,
10: the, sure.
3: uh, so we can promote it with our networks? As yeah, as well. I would
10: love to. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, yes, ma'am.
12: <laughs> nice, nice management. Of well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'm going to move over to specialty care because I know, you know, as Dr. Magalong um, intimated, this is definitely an area where I think more continued work needs to be done. Any questions on primary care before I move on? Okay. Um, um, so this is our specialty TNA data from January. Um, the February data hadn't been quite released, and you will see, you know, even though some of our service lines are below 30 days, there are many that are still really far along in this graph. And so I really want to spend a bulk of the time talking about, you know, what I think some of the challenges are and what our strategic approach to managing specialty access is, because a lot of this, you know, the specific service lines may change, but the fact that we have wait times for specialty is something that I think has been a constant presence at our organization for a long time. Um, So I think there's some operational things that definitely remain to be seen and optimized in specialty clinic access. So we did have a clinic cancellation policy that was implemented uh, by the MEC across both primary and specialty care in January that minimizes last minute cancellations. So if a Clinic is canceled in under 90 days' notice, which usually means you know if there's patients in that template. The expectation is that the provider does a makeup clinic, so that we're not telling patients, hey, your appointment's canceled, you have to wait three more months, but that within a 30-day time frame, those patients are accommodated. And you know our specialists, especially, juggle a number of competing priorities in patient outpatient. They really risen to the occasion, sort of adhere to this policy and take a much more patient-centered approach because emergencies do come up. You know there there may be life things happening. There may be coverage needs elsewhere um, so we've actually seen a significant decline in clinic cancellations especially in our specialty area after this policy was implemented which has really helped with patient access
4: well, I'm, not, I'm not understanding what what give me some examples of what of why clinics would be canceled
12: so I think sometimes you know our leave processes aren't always as clear so it is you know in some cases planned vacation but the request to block the clinic was not submitted in as much advanced time as you knew about it. Um, sometimes there's someone calls out sick and that provider gets pulled to cover the inpatient service or go to the OR even though they were scheduled to do clinic. Um, so it, historically, and Dr. Jamaluddin who stepped out in an opportune time, you know, he'll tell you that we have a hierarchy of demands. If someone is crashing in the ICU or there's an urgent trauma in the OR, you know, that, that takes precedence over the clinic and the stable patients who are there. One of Dr. Jamaladeen's tenets is we should treat the clinic like the ICU, and we should ensure that we are staffing all of these areas um, equally, as opposed to just you know the tyranny of the urgent that is in front of us.
3: Yeah, we discussed the whole clinic closure and finance last time. To see, you know, that's um, a access as well as fiscal implications of that.
12: Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the other challenge in general with the specialties, which when I get to the Rubicon section I think scores the need for Rubicon even more is that we definitely have vacancies. Dr. Baden can tell you the challenges that she's had recruiting for some of the service lines that are vacant right now and we are not the only organization facing these challenges nationwide, and especially in the Bay Area. Um, specialists do not grow on trees <laughs> and um, it's challenging. And so some of our access metrics are just that even though we have the position budgeted, we're looking, we just can't get someone here. Do you want to elaborate on that at all or that, um? Sure. Yeah.
10: So we were, in terms of specialty access, we were facing um, some vacancies in neurology due to a death and then also due to someone leaving the organization. Um, But we've been able to successfully recruit in neurology, so we're going to be staffed again. Um, with a new chief of neurology and also additional neurologists, So that was a successful recruit. Um, we have been facing challenges spe- specifically in recruiting in rheumatology, actually. So there's not as many rheumatologists as we need in the nation, and um, we are, there are actually many vacancies in rheumatology across the East Bay, even um, in private and, and organizational practices. So that's one area where we're facing some um, pressure. And then the other area is Hemonc. So um, we, we were able to successfully recruit a new hematology on started at the beginning of March. So we are expanding. But it's been a long and difficult recruit. Um, we still have um, some opportunity there. Um, so those to the, the two areas that,
12: um, uh, three areas that will experience and access issues and recruiting. Totally. And I think those are just good examples of it. It's not for lack of trying. No. Um, so I think there's two real strategic approaches to improving specialty access. One is sort of optimization and what we can do with the existing resources and infrastructure that we have. And so I alluded to um, the template standardization project. So Dr. Baden and the Division Chiefs in Medicine have been helping to lead that process. We're working on implementation right now with the plan to go live of standardized templates for the medicine specialties this summer. And then we're starting the planning process with the surgical specialties after that. And they'll go sometime after. We've also identified a lot of our Opportunities for redesign. So, many of our specialties suffer from just really crowded clinical settings, especially on our K7, um, surg- which is mostly surgical specialties area. Many of the providers don't even have two rooms. The wait times are really long. We lack sufficient registration staff to register patients in a timely fashion to get them in a room to get them discharged. Um, people sometimes wait four to six hours for their appointment. You know, we were meeting with the surgical specialist last month, and our new breast surgeon. She was seeing her 1250 patient at 5 p.m., one day because that's how far behind um, the clinic was running and so Catherine has been helping lead some of our specialty redesign work and what we found is you know I think this is just we did this to ourselves with poor planning frankly is that we don't always look at where is the space where are we going to put these people we just you know we're like oh we need someone let's just add them into this existing space so in k 7 where there's clearly not enough space they have zero vacant rooms and like I said people are sharing single exam rooms in HCP 5 when we mapped out the vacancies, um, there were numerous rooms that were vacant for some sessions. So there are days where like 10 exam rooms are empty. Um, So we're going through an entire space reallocation process right now to take clinics from those crowded areas and move them to areas where we have sometimes extra staff that aren't being utilized as well as extra space because that is really what's going to help us improve throughput. And the chairs um, have really led that process to create clinical groupings, which they've vetted with their respective division chiefs to say if we're going to move specialties, what needs to be next to each other? You know, our neurosurgeons and neurologists work so intimately. They share patients. They need to be located in the same area sharing staff because they have a lot of overlap. Similarly, we had a number of our cancer specialties both Gynonc and Breast Clinic that have been located away from our Hemonc Clinic and our infusion center. And they would love to be in the same place because again, they share patients, they go to tumor board, if they're in the same space, they can easily consult on common cases. So actually, this redesign project, I think we've gotten the most positive feedback on because it's helping create alignment and achieve efficiency with our existing resources. Questions on any of that? Um, We anticipate these moves happening over the course of the next 6 to 12 months. There's obviously a lot of planning that needs to go into getting space ready, getting space committee approval, moving things, rescheduling patients. um, But we we think this will be really great. I think the other reality is even if we optimize, just the need in our specialty areas is so great. Mm -hmm. And to think that with optimization and the resources that we have, we are going to be able to see every single patient in person, um, independent of the severity of their condition, I think is a little unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And this is where Rubicon really comes in. So what other systems have done and where the nation, frankly, is headed is really triaging specialty Needs and saying, you know, who actually needs to see the specialist and let's get those patients in because they need the specialty expertise and who can actually be managed in primary care with maybe a little bit of coaching and guidance from our specialists because that is from a, you know, system wide population health cost effectiveness standpoint, better for the patient because right. they don't need to go anywhere, better from a resource management mm-hmm. standpoint. Um, and so other systems have obviously implemented this <laughs> long before we have, but I'm excited that we are headed in this direction. I think all of us. Believe that this is sort of the key to managing specialty access moving forward.
8: Uh, Trustee Johnson.
3: Thank you. As, you, as I, I'm looking back on the specialty um,
4: TNAA chart, and I wonder if, like the the ENT and rheumatology, just occurs to me might be two. They're the two the three highest, but they might also be, to your point, managed more effectively.
3: In In primary
12: care. Care. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Coming from a daughter and we do that informally. You know, I know we've only had one rheumatologist, so I will often sort of text email you know send dr ferguson notes in next gen saying hey i saw a mutual patient here's what's happening you tell me how do you want me to adjust her meds and she tells me and i take care of it and the patient is managed and you know it's taken her 2 minutes to answer my question it's saved that patient the trip to rheumatology and it's preserved that rheumatology slot for some patient who you know is brand new needs a diagnosis needs a workup that i'm not capable of providing necessarily
0: and the challenge of that Trustee Jensen in the current work form is, uh, um, how shall I say, uh, Dr. Ferguson isn't given the clinical credit for, for that work effort. Mm-hmm. Rubicon offers a different opportunity where we can measure and manage how many consults Dr. Ferguson saw. And, and right now, a lot of the work which happens in the system uh, is, is appropriate, but it's, it's, uh, it's offline. So, mm-hmm. so there's, a, there's an undefined N of how many times you did that last month.
12: Mm-hmm. And does that get
0: resolved with the new EHL? So uh, I'll, I'll let Dr. Barbara comment on the chat.
12: I'm going to answer that in one minute, if that's okay. Oh, okay sure. <laughs> so I just wanted to show you this slide. This is what our current referral workflow is. It is unintelligible because the current (laughs) workflow is unintelligible, so we don't need to belabor this slide. Um, What we do know, and so our own in-house referral uh, team, who's uh, the amazing Yvonne Spedeleri, who reports to Raphael, she manages a referral unit, worked with the Rubicon team, and they sort of did some analysis. Our current process takes up to 20 steps. It goes through eight different systems, and eight different people, so you can imagine those handoffs, you know, things go missing. And it takes us up to five weeks to schedule a consult. And in some cases, this is because it's coming electronically. Someone then prints something. Someone then prints something else from Sorian. There's a pile of papers. They walk that pile over to the specialist who then writes notes on the papers. Then they go back. Then they are uploaded into the electronic system. Then they are sent back to wherever they came from. So, I mean people are like, why does it take five weeks? And that that process can take up to five weeks. Um, The outcomes, unfortunately, are that in current state, only about 40% of our referrals ever get scheduled. 60% disappear. Either that they are lost in this chain, we are unable to reach the patient, or we needed additional information that we've made a request by fax sometimes, by rough track, by email to the referring provider, and then we may not have gotten a response. Mm -hmm. Of the ones that are scheduled, only about 40% show up. And some of this is due to the wait times, right? We know if we gave that patient a new patient appointment six months from now, they may very well have gone to see another provider, showed up in the emergency room, they no longer have that need that they were referred for in the first place. So what Rubicon does is it takes all of that mess and it goes to one system. So when we get Rubicon, it's going to be plugged into NextGen. You click a link. It opens this beautiful, very modernized, tech-savvy portal. Um, Taft has been doing e-consults on Rubicon, so he can tell you that he has an app on his phone and it's much easier to navigate than Sorian Clinicals or NextGen, probably. Is that That fair? That is fair. (laughs) And you can get it on your iPhone, which I don't think any of our current applications, we can do that. Um, and so everything will be in one place. There will be no more yellow border paper forms, no more fax, no more ref track, no more next gen, no more clerks entering things in Sorian, no more person on the inpatient unit carrying the pile of inpatient referrals on paper over to the referral unit. Everything is gonna be done through the system. And then the beauty of the system is that it is a direct linkage between the referring provider and the specialist. And the specialist will look at every every single referral and determine, do I need to see this patient? And if yes, what do we need? You know, what tests can we get done ahead of time? What um, imaging can we get done ahead of time so that when the patient actually shows up in clinic, that specialist has all the information they need to treat the patient to the best of their ability. And if they don't need to be seen, how can we support the PCP? So you know, I recommend you try X, Y, and Z meds. I recommend you titrate this. I'm sure both Rachel and Taft can tell you there's so many patients in our specialty care system where if we had that direct communication with the primary care provider, they could go back to primary care. They don't even maybe they're seen once and then the PCP takes them over, but in current state even trying to figure out who is the PCP where are they, how do I get them on the phone or communicate to them is really a Herculean task.
4: How do they get to special care to begin with?
12: In current state? Mm -hmm. Um all over the place, so they are referred either by the primary care clinics. Some patients are just told to show up. So sometimes, you know, especially for ortho clinic, has a cell time where people are fracturing and they just show up to clinic without an appointment. Um, sometimes it's really bad for patient care because we find that their insurance, if they private insurance, they're not eligible to be seen, and then they're turned away with a broken foot, which is like horrible for the patients. Um, you know, sometimes they're referred directly from the emergency room. I'm sure there's provider to provider referrals, other sources. Our primary care referral
10: basis from all over the county, so C H C N our own primary care clinics, so that's and the different they refer to us in different ways. So you can refer on NextGen if you're within our system, but if you're from CHCN, you have to refer to us on RepTrack. So it's complicated. So they're referred
4: outside the system from inside and outside. From inside, from inside
10: and outside. In- mm-hmm. From inside
0: and out. Inside yeah. out. So our, our community partners, like, as you've said, Asian Health, who is not part of Alameda Health System, although they're AHS on their own, or, or like Clinica, we. we uh, AHS serves as the primary specialty uh, uh, referral uh, site for all these, all these places. So they're not technically an Alameda Health System, but they use us for our specialty care. And when they have specialty questions, they can refer them through Rubicon. We have internal stakeholders as well. Dr. Barre is a primary care physician here. So this will offer her the opportunity to say, maybe I don't need this patient to go to clinic, per se. I'm just going to ask the GI team a specific question, and they might be able to answer it for me without the patient having come. So if, if I might steal from you, Paul, yep. for a second. So we, we current, uh, uh, there are a couple of services which actually currently model this. GI is one of them. Uh, help me out, Rachel.
10: GI, Dr. Jamaluddin does all Dr. of the Dr. E- does pulmonary. pulmonary. Uh, we do um, rheumatology, endocrine, urology, yeah. um, uh, those are, those are the, the, the heavy hitters. And so we've been piling this since September of 2016.
0: Yeah. And, and the process goes as follows. Uh, uh, if you sign up to participate in this, uh, as, as all my division has, as Dr. Jamaluddin has, you'll get a tickler email. There's a Rubicon available to you. There's a set up time to reply in 24?
12: 72 hours. 72 hours.
0: And then you will get that tickler email, and you click the link. And it can be on your device. So I have one right now on my device. And this is, there's no patient inform, uh, personal information, so there's no HIPAA stuff that we necessarily need to talk about. This is a 53-year-old Asian female who has all the following data. And then there's a specific question, is there any further workup needed for this patient? Does this patient need to be referred to GI? What is the screening interval for a patient's next colonoscopy? We gave out a, a nice one-paragraph reply to them, and it went right back out to them. Now. In, in the current system, we, we, we can't adjudicate that they're going to be coming, but the, the referring provider got an answer.
12: In the future uh, system, they will automatically in, come to us if yes, they need And to it becomes it. part of their medical record in the future system. And mm-hmm. in the current
0: state, it does not. So this is actually a great dialogue. My docs actually love it. Uh, because it actually, you feel like you're helping a patient and you didn't have to waste their time to come in and go through parking and all that kind of stuff. And it helps our referring providers because it, it actually helps them, in my opinion, to frame very good questions. Because some of the, in, in past history, referrals would be just like uh, abdominal pain. And, and, and you, uh, there, there's a million different things it could have been, but these, the questions, the, the content quality has gotten so good and I'd ask Dr. Jamaluddin to comment on, on that as well. I, yeah, I, I think this is something secure. that the private, providers really like. I mean, the, the good thing, probably eight nine out of ten
6: of the patients do not need to come and see me. Right. Uh, yeah. that's, that's an important thing. The other thing is that we are not using the patient as a conduit right. information exchange.
5: Right. You
6: know, uh, and uh, sometimes even they ask me question, what shall I tell the patients? Right. I will ask them and it is uh, not a one-way conversation so sometimes i ask for more information they will give me the information so what has been happening is that uh, our primary care uh, physicians are learning because they know that this chest x-ray this is the answer and sometimes even we give them references yes so uh, uh, we are really empowering our primary care physicians to make the best decision without having the patient to take an appointment, come at a later stage, find parking, and some people take two buses to come here, and then just to see
0: something on the chest X-ray. And, and, and I, would, I would, in follow-up to that, and then Trustee, I would very much support what Dr. Jamaluddin said. It actually becomes a dialogue between the specialist and the primary care doctor. So the next time that primary care provider has the same type of condition, they know, oh, this is what Dr. Jamaluddin's gonna want. And I, the hopes are it becomes a learning system. So maybe Dr. Jamaluddin doesn't need, doesn't get consulted next time because they already know what Dr. Jamaluddin thinks about the workup of a lung nodule or what have you.
4: So, uh, and please forgive if this sounds mercenary, because I'm very impressed with this thing. But can you bill on a consult like this?
0: I'll let Dr. Barbaria Bak- talk about this. I can yes, explain
6: what we bill? Uh, $35 for a consult that comes from the $55 from CHCN,
12: right? So for the actual payers, there is no current reimbursement for e-consult anywhere in the state of California for any of our major payers. I, that is the future of healthcare, and so I will not be surprised if at some point legislation is passed to allow for reimbursement. For Rubicon specifically, when our AHS specialists um, respond to outside providers, we get paid $35 or something like that, is it 35 or 50 I think it's $34. Maybe $34 a response. Um, I think the real value is as we move towards population health and capitation. So there's tons of literature published on this. San Francisco General was able to avert 40% of their visit volume Mm -hmm. through e-consult alone. And so I know when we're all fee-for-service, we're like, no, we don't want less visit volume. But if it's resulting in better value for the patients, it's definitely worth it. Not to mention we have backlogs everywhere, so we we can't even absorb the visit volume that we have. So the goal is really... You know, how do we support all the specialists to avert as much of the unnecessary volume as possible? And to Taft's point, track that so that people get credit for that work. And yeah, maybe it's not in billable revenue, but it's part of people's job descriptions. Here's how many e consults you did this past year. Here's how long that took. And then certainly when we move towards specialty capitation, which there is a strategic plan to do in the next few years, this makes much more sense. That's why Kaiser, you know, does 50 plus percent of all of their encounters virtually without ever having the patient step forward but in the office. Dr.
0: Doctor I have
9: a question. Is this available only for primary care in this is what you're doing at, between primary care and the
10: specialists. So, I'm sorry. So we've been piloting it um, with CHCN specifically, not even with primary care here. So the pilot has been between CHCN and AHS specialty providers for about the last year and a half. So uh, we have just signed the contract to formalize this for the system. So this will be available to all of the system um, and continue to be available to CHCN. And we can actually send a link to any of our partners within the community so that can access our specialty care this way so soon you all will be able to access it um, as soon as it's implemented, but it's a build within our system here.
12: And um, just one thing to note is that it, it does require someone to respond, and right. so we're working out, you know, an emergency room physician may not be the best person to send it, because then the patient's gone, you're never going to see right. that patient again, so we're working out workflows through this working group that we have, where how can the emergency room communicate this information to the specialist, who then enters the referral and becomes the back and forth owner moving forward.
9: I can see this helpful, right, uh, yeah. So, you know, when some of, our, of Dr. Ferguson's patients, for example, end up in the hospital, you know, this is one way of, you know, communicating with her and setting up a follow-up appointment. Right.
12: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
9: Right. Yeah. Just a couple of <coughs> uh, We are looking
6: into telepsychiatry as well because that will help our emergency departments. And, uh, you know, it's going to be the future also, you know, in terms of not only e-consult, but like medicine, mm-hmm. like to avoid the patient to have to come to the hospital. Um, I, I don't know. I, we projected earlier the third next available. But if you remember last, uh, last year, we projected this was two years. Yeah. You know, uh, mm-hmm. so. Uh, now mean, there's six thanks. days. Uh, Dr. Baden Halav, you know, now we see every patient the same week.
7: That's great. Yeah, Yeah, what a change. Just another small question. So uh, is there any possibility that a physician who's being asked to consult, if they feel in doubt and want to see the patient, is there any Factors weight against them for not not letting it happen that way. No, oh, okay, they can yeah. see yeah. the button and
6: send the patient. Okay, That's it.
12: Yeah, and so in the future state system, you know, the specialist will make that determination. I need to see you or I don't. And if I need to see you, then it just goes to the scheduler's. You know, patient is given an appointment. The other beauty of the system is because it's one system, all of the data is tracked, and so exactly. our goal is going to be, you know, a hundred percent loop closure on every single referral and none of this abysmal 60% of them getting lost in the ether somewhere.
0: As, as Paula knows and her team knows, the challenge will be in operationalizing this because in current state, the, those services that do it do it all on their extra time. So, so you can imagine the volumes of patients, which could definitely fill up days and days mm-hmm. of clinics, that this will be a, a robust dialogue between, between operations and, and steering and management and all that kind of stuff. But I, I, I think this is a great great move for our system.
3: Amazing
12: improvement. Just doing a time check. So, the last part is I just wanted to give a brief update on where we're headed with our patient centered medical home and team based care model in primary care, which we alluded to last time. Um, So, these are some slides. We did actually a staff wide engagement and training in January where all of our Frontline staff, so 400 people in ambulatory got together, all of the nurses and medical assistants got together, the eligibility clerks got together, the providers got together with the relevant local and system leaders. Um, where we really mapped out, you know, where do we want to be in our future PCMH state in our team based care journey, looking at roles and responsibilities and thinking through how do we get everyone operating to the top of their license. And, and this is why we're doing this getting back to both Jean's comments and Taft's. Um, comment about workforce, we know that there's robust evidence in primary care that team-based care reduces burnout Mm -hmm. and improves job satisfaction, not just for providers, which you would expect, but actually also for staff who feel much more engaged and empowered by their sort of elevated role in patient care. It also allows us to meet patient needs. The volume of primary care demands is just too great that if everything is done by a provider, we are never going to be able to take care of the patient holistically and meet all of their health care needs. It also improves patient access that if patients can see the nurse or the nutritionist, or the LBN for their vaccination or, you know, have a phone visit with the health coach and not just their provider, there's multiple ways we can help care for that patient. Um, And then we also really want to standardize. So we are finding, you know, just there's a lot of variation in practice and setup across all of our primary care (laughs) wellness centers. And as we prepare for EPIC, standardizing the roles and responsibilities of everyone throughout the system is even more imperative. Um, so this is just briefly our journey. Um, as I presented at our last QPSC, all of our MAs are doing medication reconciliation and all of the cancer screening, and that's really led to robust increases in our cancer screening rates. Um, we are launched our chronic care teams this past fall. And so every single one the center has a pharmacist and in some cases a <coughs> chronic care nurse and they are managing high-risk diabetic patients and really you know, seeing them even as often as weekly or bi-weekly as needed, providing intensive coaching, education, training, because a lot of the people who have uncontrolled diabetes overlap with who our most vulnerable patients are. Some of them have depression, Many of them you know, have poor health literacy and aren't able to manage their insulin or their conditions very well. Um, many of them have comorbid mental health illness and they just you know, they need more than a 20 minute primary care visit to really delve into those conditions. We're hoping to finalize the roles and responsibilities of our future states, what do eligibility clerks across all of our sites do, what do all the MAs do, what do the nurses do, and then implement this summer sort of phase three of those new revised roles and responsibilities. Um, Are we on time?
0: You you can have plus five. We're, we're going to go quickly through the last. Have another eight minutes or so.
12: Great. I'll go through these pretty quick. Um, these are just some of the process measures for that team-based care. So our amazing quality department and the BI teams have really helped pull together all of these reports. So we now have sort of provider and nursing level dashboards. You know, because again, data data matters and data speaks. And so every team-based care element that we've introduced, there's a report to go along with that. And our nursing supervisors can actually run this report at the individual medical assistant level, so they can at their clinic, okay, how many times is each MA doing this, who are the maybe star performers who can help coach others, who's maybe struggling that I need to go back and sort of educate and train a little bit more. Um, So this is just an example of this is where we've identified someone smokes tobacco, are we actually giving them counseling that they should quit? And you know, again, this doesn't need to be done by the provider, the MA can provide that counseling the second they screen the patient. Um, some of these other ones, this is our mammograms being ordered by M.A.s. So you'll see in general our rates have been going up. This was a huge change in January of 2017. Many of our clinics, you know, just the providers weren't always ready to let go. The M.A.s were a little bit hesitant to say, oh, can I take this away from the providers? And now many of our clinics are at the goal. and. Um, I don't know if I shared this the last time I was here, but we went to this great SNI-based training where there's someone who, um, based on chaos theory, if you can't do something reliably more than 80% of the time, you're in utter chaos. And so that is our target for all of these process measures, is we have to be above the 80% mark all the times so that we are not in chaos. So that explains so. everything about exactly, right. on in D.C. <laughs> and, well, yeah, and, and, and the part is it multiplies. So step one is at 80%, and step two is at 80%. Really, that's at 64% not 80%, so when you have a 10 step process, it's really hard to get there. Um, Similarly, our fit rates, you'll see, especially since the summer have gone up, most of our clinics are sustaining that improvement for the MA ordering colon cancer screening consistently on patients who are due for it. Um, And then our CG caps rates, I just wanted to highlight these. We have been consistently above our target for prime um, for rating the provider nine or 10, and and this is really, I think, a testament to the providers in primary care um, because there are other challenges patients wait long times other parts of the experience aren't always as great and in this one domain you know our patients are really happy every single time we review all the comments in detail as well And then the last thing I'll go through, I know Tasha's like you have way too many slides, but I'm gonna talk fast, it's the New Jerseyite in me. Um, We presented this at our Prime Kickoff meeting. We do a large Prime meeting every six months before the mid-year and final year submission with all of the project teams to spotlight. Um, So SOGI is sexual orientation and gender identity. We are required to collect it um, for Prime, so it's one of the Prime projects. And just the process I think is really instructive of how we can do things well in our organization and also just some of the learnings that we have. So before the Prime project was launched, even though this field existed in NextGen, only about one in a thousand patients had anything entered into the field. So we just weren't screening. It matters because this is, you know, going back to the health inequity piece, we know from data that there are numerous health inequities and disparities specifically in the LGBTQ population. There's higher rates of mental health and behavioral health disorders, higher rates of smoking. And if you don't ask especially for lesbian and bisexual women or some of our transgender patients, they don't always receive the appropriate cancer screening that they should. And we also know from other studies that if we ask, people feel more comfortable with that healthcare setting. They feel like their identity is validated and it makes them trust their healthcare provider and the institution more, so it actually matters. Um, So in the planning process, the team looked at best practices, they looked at different EHRs, how do other systems do this, and really put together what is the standard out there. We did two pilots, which was great, um, that you know the teams came up with. In one pilot, the medical assistants asked the questions. In another one, they had a paper form where patients could self-report, because some people thought if you're not, you know, if you're asking, it may be a little bit more awkward and uncomfortable. And the data you know, was striking which one of these worked better. And so you'll see the ones where the MAs were asking the questions, the completion rate was 80, 87%. The ones with the paper form, 16%. And the paper form took much longer on average, and then the ME questions didn't actually add that much time to the intake piece. And a lot of learnings were patients just seem to trust the medical assistants. They were in the privacy of the exam room. Mm-hmm. This is someone usually that they're seeing the same medical assistant every time they come in with the visit. Well, you don't know where the paper's going, and I think that's, that's always a concern. Absolutely. Um, so we developed standard work and a spread plan and trained all of the staff on how to ask this question. And we now, you know, I think this has only been live for, when did we go live with Soji? February 1. So from February 1 until like mid-March when I made these slides, um, we've collected now data on 4,756 patients. And we've identified that 5% of them are homosexual or bisexual, 0.3% self-identify as transgender or genderqueer. And most patients answer the questions. There's very few people who've said, no, I don't feel comfortable and I don't want to answer. And I don't have the last slide in here, but one interesting just aha moment is in all of the pilots that we did, the patients were actually, for the most part, very comfortable and happy to answer the questions. Many, many, many of our staff really struggled with this one. They felt uncomfortable. There was a lot of anxiety. Um, didn't want to ask the questions. Wish that some other, you know, when we said, who should answer this question? Every group sort of pointed at another group and said, <laughs> not not us. Um, and. After the training and after they've been asking it, you know, at our prime kickoff, Heather McDonald-Fine, who's one of our managers who led the training, shared a bunch of staff quotes. That you know, people they realized it wasn't as bad as they thought it was going to be, and they've had experiences that have been affirming. Even the challenging encounters they've had, they've figured out a way to work through. So I think it's also you know a great example of data-driven improvement and doing pilots to inform which process we pick. Um, but also that sometimes there's so much anxiety about something, and when you just do it, it's not actually that big okay. deal. Mm-hmm. That's it. Thank you.
0: That was an excellent report. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Commentary by trustees or what
3: have you? I just wanted to say thank you. I mean, we've been talking about the ambulatory redesign since 2016 and just the just the transformation that's happened. And um, this really makes our day, makes my month, actually, when I see this. And uh, to your team and to all of the others that are doing it, you know, and it's hitting all of our... Pillars, really, and um, I um, processes make people happy. So, really, getting our workforce is so important as well. Besides the access, thank
6: you, thank Thank you, you, Dr. Banerjee, Dr. Jamaluddin. Just one point, uh, you know, uh, I just want to tell the world also that uh, almost all our our s- specialties are on next gen right now, including the surgical specialty, orthopedics, general surgery, and we are almost uh, on target, you know, up to par after deployment of next gen.
12: Yes. And huge shout out to the ortho team. The next gen team said that they were the superstars, the smoothest next gen rollout they had in the whole organization, so were very afraid. And they were
5: very,
3: very, very <laughs> anxious. <laughs> anxious not so very anxious. Safe. Trusted, Trusted energy. energy? Sorry, one more. No. The, when the Syrian financials were done, when you couldn't get the prime data, how the, were the fiscal um, things with reporting and outcomes as well? Also, was it captured in some other way? Um.
12: You know, certainly, I, I think the biggest challenge was that our project teams didn't know where they were, so they were flying blind without that data for however many months. Fortunately, you know, in the latest prime dashboard, we are um, the trajectory stayed the same, so we didn't see any unanticipated surprises anywhere, which is which is great. Otherwise, obviously, there there may have been a financial impact, but we don't anticipate one at this point. Okay, thank you.
7: Such impressive work.
3: Right?
0: Oh my God. Very much so. Yeah. Very much so. Thank you. And as I promised with standard work, I'm going to end every presentation with the same question. With regards to your areas of accountability, Dr. Bobber, do you have any concerns with regards to our ability to execute safe and quality care?
12: So I think, you know, I'll, I'll echo Jean's sentiments that it, while there's a lot of opportunity for process improvement to realize efficiencies and gains, um, large cuts and just the resources that we have always jeopardize how we think about things and I think echoing what Jean said um, and really why it's so important to partner with our medical directors and department chairs and division chiefs I think it's a much smarter strategy instead of cutting and doing a lot of things poorly to maybe just do less but ensure that we are maintaining a really high standard in the things that we do and and we do have financial realities and, and we need to meet them and we may need to make some of those tough decisions about certain service lines where You know, we're not providing a great service and it's costing us a lot, and maybe it's better to just outsource that or to not do it if it's not essential. But that the core services that we keep and we are offering that we resource them appropriately to provide really high quality care to our patients.
0: Anything else, Dr. Bowery? Excellent. Thank you you for that excellent report. Great news for the organization when we can take it. Excellent. So with that, we'll close out item E. We'll open an item F, planning and calendar and issue tracking. A couple of planning calendar uh, items. Uh, Our next QPSC uh, with Board of Trustees is on Thursday, April 26th. The board will be having a, uh, a retreat on April 27th, Friday and April 28th. That will be here local. Uh, and uh, Dr. Hearn and uh, invited uh, the board of trustees to the annual resident quality forum on May 23rd. That would be great for this quality committee and members of it to attend. Is it that in this? It, it will be in this room. In this and May 23rd is the confirmed date, sir. Oh, that is great. Thank Excellent. You. No, that. Um, with regard to tracking issues, just to bring out things that we brought out before, uh, uh, ultimately we'll want follow-up reports on the Transfer Center. That was a topic of dialogue last time. Uh, we talked about policy education. That would be nice for, for there to be a segment and the will work with Dr. Jamaluddin and Dr. Hussein to talk about maybe some policy education in five or ten minutes. Policy for dummies, if you will, <laughs> for, for, for all of us. And then uh, this will follow up again. Uh, Dr. Hearn, Dr. Magalong, Dr. Chu are working on a medical staff retreat, and uh, to keep that on the board radar would be great.
4: Maybe an update on peer review.
0: And an update on peer review would be great for Act to Our tracking report. With that, I'll close item F and
2: go to item G. Council. Uh, the committee did meet in closed session and considered the credentialing reports for each of the medical staffs and uh, pre-credentials and privileges for fully qualified practitioners recommended by the various medical staffs. Thank you. Thank you all for a great meeting. Five minutes ahead of time. Thank you. Yeah.
3: Thank you. Okay.